We have a special dance this morning. That's called feedback. You can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, welcome. If you're not a guest, welcome. Great to have you all here to be before the Lord and His Word. Uh, We're continuing in this series. Uh, We're in a section in Revelation where different churches are being addressed. Different churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Not all the churches, it's a representative group. Seven different churches. Uh, And they represent really churches uh, throughout all history and all places. So we can find ourselves somewhere in these seven churches in some way. And this wonderful book given to us is to help us today. It's intended to help the church to be a faithful witness in a hostile world as we depend on Christ, as we look forward to Christ's final and full victory. So really, that's, we all live in that time, whether we are from one of these churches originally receiving these words, or King of Grace Church here right now, or any church at all. We are in that place where we need the encouragement this book brings to help us be faithful witnesses, vibrant witnesses for Christ, as we depend on Him and look forward to His final victory. So we are continuing. This is the fifth of the seven different churches, and the churches really represent a spectrum of different uh, degrees of health and maturity and faithfulness. And this one is the church in Sardis. Uh, they are really receiving from Jesus an evaluation of who they are. How many here, uh, as part of your job, receive a yearly evaluation of some sort? How many here? A good amount of us. I, for me, um, as, when I was in research, it was a regular part of my job, a yearly and actually a semi-annual evaluation uh, went on and and, uh, and now as a pastor, uh, we believe in that and practice that. And actually, we have this year's evaluation still to do, but uh, we do evaluations. And, and how does it, uh, like what goes on in your mind when evaluation time is coming up? What sort of feelings does it bring up? Um, I think, if I can speak for everybody, it kind of brings a mixture, right, of dread. Like, oh no, I wonder what's going to happen. Am I going to be, you know, graded well? Uh, what's going to happen, and then there can be hope in it too, uh, particularly if things have gone relatively well, the hope of of being commended for what's good, and the hope of being corrected in a good way. When we're in a good situation and it's a healthy place to work, evaluations are meant to be helpful, right? They're meant to help us grow and get better. So there's kind of that mixture of dread and hope, I think, there. And and really that's how we should come at the the Word of God and at Revelation chapter 3. These churches... Uh, should receive this evaluation from Jesus with that. Their sobriety, recognizing this is serious. We're going to be addressed here. But in hope as well, hope for change, hope for commendation. Uh, And that's really what's going on in these seven churches. They're receiving evaluations. And and we should observe them receiving the evaluation, but also recognize these are ultimately evaluations for us as a church and individually as well. To hear from Jesus, the chief shepherd, as he brings an evaluation. Now, I need to tell you that this evaluation is a not-so-good one. This church is in serious trouble. Uh, They need these words that Jesus brings. They're actually, this is one of those evaluations where the employee, so to speak, is not ready and is thinking everything's pretty good. 
and they're going to get some strong words that are probably a surprise to them. But even that is good, particularly coming from the mouth of the chief shepherd who's faithful. So with that in mind, with that reality for this church and for us, let's pray and ask God to help us listen to his evaluation, not only for this church, but for our lives as well. Lord, we thank you for this section of Revelation. We thank you for your love for the church there in Sardis and your desire to bring correction to them. And Lord, we live before you. We live under you. And there'll be a final evaluation when we stand before you. And, but in your great love, you care for us now to prepare us for that final evaluation by evaluating our lives through your words. And we thank you for your great mercy and grace. We thank you that you're for us. But we thank you also that you are Lord. And you see all. And so we ask you, Lord, to give us hearts to look to you to respond to you, and by your grace to change. That we might be more like you, individually and ultimately, Lord, your, your greater concern even is as a church. We would look like you. So speak, O Lord, as we hear from your word. Use me to serve you, Lord, and serve your precious people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 1-6. Now it looks like this church in Sardis uh, didn't realize that they were in trouble. They were thinking they were doing well. They have a reputation for life. They have a name for being alive. But in fact, they are dead. It's a pretty much a dead church. Now, Jesus is using that picture of life and death to kind of wake them up, to shake them. There is something that still remains, we read, right? There's still life there, and there are those among the church who have not soiled their garments. There's something good going on there. So it's not entirely dead, but it's in great danger of being dead. And yet they, they think that they're alive. So really what's going on for this church is a matter of life and death. The life or the death of this whole church. And what I want to tell you up front, I think this teaches us that the, the gospel, the good news, and keeping the gospel, living in the gospel, the good news is a matter of life and death. That's the lesson from Sardis. And there's lots of things that flow from that. So we'll, we'll go through that. We'll follow the, the Scripture itself. We'll look through the different verses, starting in verse 1 and moving forward. First, we're going to talk about a reputation for life. Then we're going to talk about a recipe for life, how we 
live, how we find life, and then a reward for life, a reward for eternal life. So, so let's begin. First, a reputation for life. Jesus speaks to them here. Uh, he says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. We had looked at that earlier, the seven spirits of God. It doesn't mean that the God, the Holy Spirit, there are seven different Holy Spirits. There's only one. Numbers in Revelation are not to count things, they're to represent things. That's important as we go through this book, by the way. So seven doesn't represent the number of the Holy Spirit. It represents uh, an aspect of the Holy Spirit. Seven is the completion, perfection, fullness. And also it speaks of God's presence among the churches. These seven churches, God the Holy Spirit dwells among these churches. So the, He's the one who's in union as the Son with the Holy Spirit who's present in the seven churches. So there's this aspect of presence. I know you guys. He's going to say, I know your works. He doesn't know their works from afar. He knows, knows their works from being amidst them. Amidst the church, with them. He knows everything about them. He's the one with the seven spirits, the, the fullness, the perfection of, of God in God the Holy Spirit and His presence among the seven churches, representative of all the churches. So every church has God dwelling among them. This church, King of Grace Church, God the Holy Spirit is with us right now. And He knows us. And Jesus is the one who's united with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is here in union with the Holy Spirit. The triune God is one. Three persons, but one, one God. And so Jesus Himself is present here. And He's the one who holds the seven stars. The stars represent the great angels over the churches, the, the angels that oversee those churches. There's a spiritual reality behind every church. And I would expect from this Scripture that there's an angel over our church. There's a spiritual reality. And Jesus is sovereign over the, over the spiritual reality. He's sovereign over those angels. He's sovereign over the church. So he's speaking to the church in Sardis as the one who is present and sovereign. And he says to them, I know your works. I, I know what's going on. This is an important lesson in the letters here, really in all of Scripture. Boy, if we just got this one lesson that Jesus is present with the church and sovereign over it. He's here. This is His church. There's a reality of, of Christ dwelling with us and ruling over this church. That, that would be wonderful just to get that one lesson and live in light of that. But as the ever-present, ever-ruling, ever-aware one, he, he knows their lifestyles. He knows their actions. And they're incomplete. There's an incompletion in their good works. So there's some things that are good there. There's some life. But they there's an incompletion to the point where they are dead. There's death or there's lack there. They think they're a church that's full of life. And yet Jesus says, you have a name for being alive, you have a reputation for being alive, but your name is better dead. That's a better name to describe you, church in Sardis. This is meant to shock them, make, meant to wake them up. Uh, it looks like, from what we know of history too, that Sardis was a city in its spiritual heritage before Christianity would have identified with being a place where they were seeking life, that they were uh, drawing life out of death. There was a whole religious cycle that they followed of, of renewal and life out of death. And so it was a city that kind of prided itself on life, on being alive. And so Jesus saying this here is, is going to catch their attention. And make them hopefully realize, wait a second, it's not what we thought. We thought we were an alive church. This was a prosperous city. It was a city that, that included a section that was uh, 
surrounded by cliffs. There was a fortress up on a, on a hill, surrounded by cliffs. And also, this was a uh, city, one of the first places in the world, if not the first place, where they actually minted gold coins. It was a city that had a stream that ran through it that was rich, coming out of the mountains, rich in gold, actually. It, just, it glittered with gold, and so they, they had basically all the money they wanted right there in their stream bed. And so they minted coins. They were wealthy. They had a prestigious military. They had ruled that region, actually, at one point. And they had this, this military fortress that was impregnable had a reputation of being unassailable. And they also had a, a well-resourced, you can imagine with the money they had, well-resourced military. So they had all this vibrancy and strength and life. And yet Jesus says, your works are not complete. You are more like the living dead than those that are alive. So it's an image meant to shock them and wake them up. They're in serious trouble. And it looks like perhaps what was going on, there was a smug confidence in who they were as a city, in their culture. A smug confidence in who they were, uh, in their vitality and security. And there was a history of uh, spiritual syncretism. So this city was a place where they kind of brought together different religions. So Greek gods and Jewish truth and, and kind of made this blend that they all kind of practiced and got along with. So it looks like the Christians had been compromising with that idea. It doesn't look like they were entering into the, to the Roman uh, deities and so forth that were going on in some of the other cities, but perhaps they were compromising with the strong, kind of somewhat syncretic Jewish population. This is city historically had a very large, vibrant Jewish population, so non-believing, not believing in Jesus as the Messiah, Jewish population. And so they were compromising. We, we can look in what Jesus says. It looks like they were compromising in their witness. Because he quotes to them um, a promise that he's going to confess. He's going to confess their name before the Father and the angels if, if they are faithful. That if they abide in Christ, keep the gospel, and are faithful, that they are going to be rewarded with Christ himself confessing their name before the Father and the angels. So it looks like Jesus is getting at an issue there because he says elsewhere almost the same thing, right? Have you read that perhaps before in Matthew chapter 10? He says, so everyone who acknowledges, we have this to put up, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. Acknowledge or confess, same, same word. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this is connected here, what he's saying to the church in Sardis, that if you guys are faithful, I will confess you. It's implied that they have not been confessing Jesus. And that is likely their compromise, that they are looking to just get along with their neighbors, looking to just get along with the population. And if they can keep from identifying them, identify themselves as followers of Jesus and maybe kind of stay in that identification as just part of the synagogue, as Jews, they can stay out of trouble. And so they're, they're keeping their profile low, it looks like and not confessing Jesus, and compromising, and yet still doing things as a church. They think they're alive, they think they're strong, they think they're doing well, but they're not confessing Jesus boldly and faithfully. It looks like that's what's going on. There's a false peace that they're experiencing as they're not confessing Christ to their neighbors and family. There's a false peace from not rocking the boat. But Jesus says, guys, it's not okay. You think you're alive, you think you're okay, you're dead as a church. 
in this. And you're in danger of being taken by surprise. If, if they don't wake up out of their stupor, Jesus says He will come like a thief at a time that they don't expect. Not a thief in the sense of someone who comes to rob, but someone who comes unsuspected, unprepared. When we're not prepared, a thief comes. So surprising the homeowner. So, so the idea is that if you guys continue, you're going to find me showing up and bringing judgment on your church. I don't think it means the final judgment. It means a temporal judgment of some sort. That this church is going to have to close down and close its doors. Christ is going to do something. This also would have caught their attention, by the way. Because as strong as this city was, as amazing as this fortress was and so forth, they were known, it was legend, uh, that they had been taken over and conquered by thieves. Spies, basically, sneaking in. So they had this amazing fortress on, on cliffs, and, and they were attacked multiple times and were able to resist, except for a couple times where they didn't expect the spy to climb up the cliff. And they didn't, weren't even guarding that part of the fortress. They were, they were guarding the front gates. They thought, no one's going to climb the cliffs. And the spy climbed the cliffs, snuck in, went in and opened the main gates, and the armies came in and conquered them. It had happened before. This idea of what Jesus, of Jesus coming to them like a thief, like a spy, is also meant to catch their attention. Like if we don't take this seriously, if we think that we can just somehow dismiss this aspect of our compromise, we're going to be surprised by Christ Himself. That's what He's saying to them. There's this reputation that they have and, and they think they're okay, but they need to wake up and realize they're in trouble. They need to know that they're vulnerable. And be aware and be diligent about that vulnerability. That's what Jesus is saying. Wake up, guys. There's a serious problem here. Uh, back in the, the 90s, we lived as a family in uh, the Mission Hill section of Boston and Roxbury. Um, it was back when it was a bad area. It's not so much a bad area now. Uh, we know that because we bought our house and sold it for 150000 And now we looked, I looked at the, the price of the, on Zillow of the house, it is 2.2 million. Um, so it's a different neighborhood. We probably should have hung on to the house. Um, but back then, it was not a, a real safe neighborhood, and we moved in. We, we were part of a church there. We co-owned the house with some, uh, some friends. And uh, we were not real prepared for living in the city. We, we knew. I mean, we're, we're not, not, we understood the city. I'd lived in the city before. But really weren't prepared for what we saw. And... And one night, while we were sleeping, someone broke into our house. They entered the cellar door, and they went, and they were probably looking for drug money. Most robberies, that's what's going on. And I uh, used to commute to work on a bike, a really nice commuter bike um, that, I, that I got. And I chained it to a, a lolly column in my basement. I used one of those cables. And to add insult to injury, the, the thief came in and used my own tools to cut my cable and steal my bike. And we found it in the morning stolen. Um, we were surprised. We were, we were not recognizing our vulnerability. We weren't prepared. We thought it would be okay. This is never going to happen. It's chained to the lolly column. After that, we got an alarm system. We never had anyone break in the house again. We were diligent. Similarly, for the church in Sardis, and perhaps for, for us as well, we need to recognize our vulnerability and wake up and assess our situation. And deal with it. This church needed to realize that they were 
in trouble. They needed to realize that they were measuring things with the wrong measuring stick. That Jesus was measuring them differently. And when Jesus measured them, they were found wanting. In their eyes, they were safe and secure and full of life. But in Jesus' eyes, they were, more, they were better described as dead. And this is so important for us, guys, as a local church as a church in a culture that has different values than the Bible, not saying all our values are bad in our culture, but, but there are a lot of values that are not biblical. And we get influenced by those ideas, and the church in America, really just like a church in any culture, gets influenced and may compromise in ways we don't recognize. And so recognizing the metrics, the, the measuring sticks that Jesus uses is so important. He does not measure the vitality of a church by its financial status. He does not measure the vitality of a church by the number of members or attendees. He doesn't measure the vitality of a church by its popularity. He doesn't measure it by how good the Sunday service is even. Or the quality of the different ministries. Or the attractiveness of the church building or the grounds or even its people. None of those things are the measuring stick ultimately that Christ uses. He doesn't measure by those things. He measures by faithful dependence on and response to the gospel, the good news of Christ. That's how he measures the health of a church. Is a church depending on this good news and living out of that good news. Therefore, loving God, loving others, loving the lost around them. That's the metric in Scripture. So guys, we need to be careful, don't we? Because all those other things, it's not that they're unimportant, but they can become the primary measuring stick for how we evaluate our church and how we evaluate any church by these other things. And it's not Jesus' measuring stick. And if we use that, like the church in Sardis, we will end up being dead thinking we're alive. That's where it goes when you don't keep Jesus' measuring stick as yours. And to realize the importance, in the case of the church in Sardis, of, of being bold witnesses for Jesus. If you keep the Gospel, you will be a faithful, bold witness for Jesus. That's a great measuring stick of the vitality of a church. You want to see if a church is healthy and gospel-centered? Look to see if people are regularly speaking about Jesus in one way or the other. Just, just normal speaking, like telling people who are your friends what's going on in your life and that you're finding strength in Christ. You don't have to have a 10-point you know, presentation of the gospel. Just be faithful to, to testify to who you are in Jesus. Let them know. Don't hide. If we're hiding Jesus, there's something wrong. And we're in danger of being the church like Sardis. But keeping the Gospel central and, and testifying to others and witnessing to others about Jesus is, is so important. It's how Jesus measures our health. That's a great application point, isn't it? For us in general, are we known as a church that boldly, faithfully, now graciously, right? Patiently, humbly, all those other qualifiers. Let's not be, let's not be a bold and obnoxious church, right? Uh, a church that has plenty to say about Jesus does, but doesn't walk the walk, doesn't walk in humility and love and service to our community, so forth. Let's not do that. I, I just trust that you're getting all those qualifiers. But boy, we need to think of our church and, and pray for our church and be a church that is bold and faithful, unafraid, unafraid to identify ourselves boldly with the good news of Christ and the truth of Christ. And that should be the, the prominent thing that our community encounters when they communicate. They encounter us. That's a church that's serious about Jesus. We can tell by what they say and how they live. And then individually, right? 
we can apply this to ourselves individually. How bold are we being? How faithful? Are we afraid of what others would think? Boy, we need to be more afraid of what the chief shepherd has to say about our lives. We want his evaluation to be well done. Good and faithful servant. And we, so we ask him for strength. It's, it's not easy to do, right? It's hard. It's hard to live knowing that people might be upset with us just for talking about Jesus in some way. Just being who we are. Just, we, we, it's hard to deal with that. And even more so with the church at this time in Sardis and the church elsewhere in the world right now. Um, they had their lives at stake, perhaps. We don't have that. But, but let's be a church that, that lets the gospel so affect us that we are faithful witnesses and we measure ourselves by the things Jesus measures us by. So, there's a reputation for life that's undeserved in this church in Sardis. Next, there's a recipe for true life. Jesus gives them the recipe for true life here. He wants this church to wake up. He wants them to realize they've compromised and they need to wake up. That, that word is used multiple times. It's, it's the idea of being alert and awake and, and, and being diligent and vigilant. That's what, that's what the word is getting at. Guys, you need to wake up. If you don't wake up, out of your stupor, I'm going to come and deal with you guys. Wake up! And actually, it, as I read and studied the word, it made me think of the word alert. And then, uh, if you're a Patriots fan, you know where I'm going with this. Tom Brady uh, is at the line of scrimmage, right? You'll hear him say, alert, alert, alert. Uh, he's probably the best guy on the team, I, I would say, for reading the defense. And so you'll see him when he's uh, ready to snap the ball. He'll say, alert, alert, alert. And then he'll usually say something like uh, Barley or Rex Ryan and then Alpha Go, right? And they, that stuff all means stuff. What's going on there is, is that he's identifying something going on on the defense and they need to change. They need to shift the play. And so those words Barley and Rex Ryan and whatever else they use, they use all sorts of words, um, are signaling to change the play. And you'll see guys move around and they'll change the play and, and hopefully it succeeds. Well, Jesus is saying here to the church in Sardis, alert, alert, alert. You need to change the play. You need to change what you're doing. You need to shift how you're living. You need to wake up and, and, and see what's happening here. You're asleep and you're nearly dead from poisoning. You need to wake up. You need to wake up and smell the fresh coffee of the good news of Christ and be changed as a church. So how does Jesus tell them they are to be changed? So they're supposed to wake up. He says in verse 3, Remember then what you received. If you could keep the uh, section titles up with the verses underneath them, that would be great. Each, uh, each will have the one with the verse under it would be good if that's there. Verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. So how do they wake up? How do they change? They are to remember then what they received and heard, keep it and repent. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. So this is the recipe. This is the recipe for them for waking up. It, it tells us what they need to do to, to have life. So, what is it? Is, is it that they are to, you know, the, this thing that they're supposed to remember is that Jesus, following Jesus leads to health and wealth in their lives? Or that's what you need to remember? You know, Jesus being a Christian leads to health and wealth. Is it that you know, Christianity leads to better social situations? Remember that truth and live in light of that truth? Is it that um, 
little bit of spirituality is good for everybody. Just remember that, guys. Or just guys, you just need to all love each other. Just, you need to love each other and get along. Is that, is that what they're supposed to remember? What they've seen, what they've heard? Is that it? No. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what Paul delivered to them as of first importance. That's what Jesus is saying you guys need to remember. You need to come back to what you had heard. You need to remember this, what you've received and heard. It's this good news of first importance that Christ died for our sins. So the life of this church, the waking up, the vibrancy of this church hinges on remembering and keeping the good news. That first starts with just remembering and celebrating and reminding each other that Christ has died for our sins. That God, the Son, God in the flesh, lived a righteous life, lived among us as a real human in real life, with real family, real friends, dealing with the real situations that we all face. God came in the flesh, lived this way, lived a righteous life, was faithful to His Father, faithful to fulfill our righteousness. And then in His love for His people, He offered up that life on the cross. He was put to death on the cross and on the cross bore our sins. He died for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty, the right penalty, the just penalty for sins. Sins are, are disobedience to God. It's turning away from God, choosing not to love Him fully, though He deserves all of our love and more, choosing not to love others as ourselves. Ultimately, that's how we can sum it up. And the penalty of sin against a good and holy God, a faithful God, in His justice, in His perfection, He must bring a penalty. The penalty of sin is death. Being cut off from God. Spiritually. Ultimately, physically. And then if we live in that, we will live forever cut off from God. But Christ in His love the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, offered His life on the cross, died, shed His blood, bore our sins, paid the penalty. That's the core of the Gospel. Christ crucified for our sins. That's the very core of it. With that, though, we know He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And He's ascended, and He's reigning, and He's coming back. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That's the ultimate truth, the ultimate proclamation, the ultimate thing that determines all things in the universe. That's the central truth. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power of God not only to get you into the kingdom, into the family of God, but to keep you and to grow you and change you and finish the job. It's all there in the Gospel. Jesus said when He died, it is finished. He atoned for your sins. All of them passed present and future. He purchased you with His blood. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. And He will hold you. He will never let you go. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. All those are gospel implications, by the way. The central gospel is that He died for our sins. But with it comes all these promises. Guys, when we keep these things, there's life. Our ability to be faithful in being witnesses, our ability to love God with our whole hearts, our ability to love one another, our ability to, to come on Sundays ready to serve comes from the Gospel. 
comes from this truth, comes from keeping the Gospel. And that's the recipe for life that Jesus gives here to this church. They need to keep it. They need to treasure it. They need to protect it. They need to nurture it. They need to find life in it. They need to share it with one another. They need to think through its implications. They need to have it, by the power of the Spirit, transform them. They need to live in forgiveness and love and vibrant witness. And if they don't keep the Gospel, something else will keep them. Something else will grab their attention and propel them and take them away from life to death. That's the reality for this church. Guys, it's a reality for us as well. The Gospel and keeping the Gospel is a matter of life and death as a church and as individuals. And so we need to keep it. And it, it's not unlike keeping a garden. If you are a gardener or someone who landscapes, and I'm getting back into this, uh, helping my wife who's worked for years and doing all this, doing some more landscaping. If you're a gardener or a landscaper, you know uh, some of the aspects of gardening. There's a diligence we need to practice, isn't there, if you're going to garden? You need to, to do certain things to have a healthy garden. Yet, you don't bring the life of the garden. You don't do it. You don't cause things to grow. You don't make the flowers beautiful. You don't make the vegetables or fruit delicious. You don't make the grass green. You don't do any of that. It has life in itself. But you do something. You, you tend the garden. You weed the garden. You water the garden. You plant the seeds. You fertilize the garden. You tend it. And it produces that life. So it is with the Gospel, guys. So it is with the Gospel. The Gospel is where the power of God is. It's, it has life in itself. We don't do anything to affect the Gospel. It's all of God. God has done it. But we are to keep it. We are to tend it. We are to be diligent. We are to weed things out that distract us from it. We are to water it. We are to plant the seeds. We're to do the work. Practically, how does that work itself out? All sorts of ways. Doing what we're doing right here, right now. Coming on Sundays and hearing the Word of God. If you're a pastor, preaching faithfully the good news. Faithfully preaching the Word. Hearing it. Being prepared and ready to, to receive it. Taking it and going to small group and discussing it. That's why we do small groups, among other reasons is to keep the Gospel together. Remembering the Gospel as you start your day. As it's been called, preaching the Gospel to yourself every day. Getting up in the morning and remembering Christ crucified for your sins. That you are a forgiven one in Christ and you are having bought at a price. You belong to Him and He loves you and He's for you and so you're going to depend on Him. Give me strength today, Lord. Thank You for Your blood shed for me. Give me strength now to love You and love others in, in my day. So remembering the Gospel when you start your day, remembering the Gospel when you finish your day. There's a wonderful book we have, A Gospel Primer. And, and it helps just with that. Remembering the Gospel. Keeping the Gospel. In small group and with relationships in the church, guys, that's one of the most important things. It's, it's the most important thing you can do. Is keep the Gospel together. Remind each other of the Gospel. Confess your sins and, and then remind each other of forgiveness and the life you have in Christ. Remind each other of the importance of the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel. Help each other live out the truth of the Gospel. Getting in the Word of God. Reading the Word. Praying. Fellowshipping together and sharing the Gospel. Guys, you can't keep the Gospel if you don't share it. That's what 
one of the lessons, I think, from Sardis. They're not confessing the name of Jesus. They think they're okay. We need to give it away. A healthy church gives the gospel away, tells others, shares just your life. And it doesn't have to get complicated. You can just say, you know, people ask you all the time, how are you doing? Great opportunity to say, you can say, I'm doing well, thank God. Christ has done a lot in my life. Or you'd be like, I'm really struggling. But uh, hey, if you want to hear about it, maybe we can do coffee together. And then over coffee you say, I'm, I'm struggling, but you know what? I know Christ has died for me. You don't have to, you know, get to the place necessarily where you're telling them what they must do. Just share your life. Those are aspects of how we keep the gospel, how we tend the garden, how we see life. So do you hear Jesus saying anything here about your life? Alert, alert, alert. I think for me, I know I want to grow in this, and as I prepare it, I just, Lord, help me. Help me live this way. Help me tend the garden. Help me do that with others. And also it's just encouragement because I do believe that we as a church are doing this and seeking to be faithful in it. So there's an encouragement here too. I hope you hear that. Finally, there's the reputation for life, a recipe for life, now a reward of eternal life. Jesus tells them that this recipe leads to reward. It's really important to get something here in Revelation, by the way, uh, just to take note of it. There's reward in Christ the day that you trust in Him. You are forgiven. You belong to Him. You start eternal life at that point. So there's a here and now aspect. And there's ways that that impacts our lives, that brings blessing here and now. But we have to be careful that we don't live the Christian life merely because of the temporal blessings. Because those are going to ebb and flow. And you're not going to be able to deal with life faithfully if you're not looking forward to our future blessings a future reward. It's telling here that Jesus' reward for them is all cast in, in sense of the future. So he says that the ones who haven't soiled their garments, so there's people in the church who have not compromised, they've been faithful to testify. They've been keeping the gospel. They've not compromised with the world, and that's what soiling the garments mean. That they will walk in white with Jesus. Jesus says right after that, those who conquer will walk in white. They will wear white garments. So that's a picture it's, it's a metaphor. It, it might be literal, and we see angels and Jesus in white, of course. But it's getting at a concept, a, a few concepts. One is that we will walk as victors. As victors with Jesus. So those who would walk in triumphal processions who were on the conquering side would wear white. That's part of what went on in the culture. And we see it right in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, 11-14. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. Speaking of Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire, and, his head are many, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. On white horses, actually. So, the, so they're wearing white, they're riding white horses. There's victory. So the idea of, of the one who's faithful, you will experience the victory of Jesus. You will ride as conquerors. You won't be conquered ones. You won't be oppressed by your culture. You will be the victorious ones. That's part of what this is getting at. Also, though, an important thing in Revelation, again, that the robes are white, not because they make them white, but they're made white by the blood of the Lamb. 
Revelation 7 says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Your purity, your faithfulness comes from Jesus ultimately. And ultimately we come before Him dirty, with robes that are stained and can only be washed by His blood. And when we keep the Gospel, and when we live in the Gospel, when we first receive the Gospel, you are washed clean and made clean. And when we keep the Gospel, we live in that place of, of the truth that we are clean in Him. And then the ramifications, the lifestyle, the identity that comes out of that. And that's the third aspect of this whiteness. Later on in Revelation in 19, it speaks of the bride. It says in verse 8, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the church is seen as the bride of Christ, and she's wearing white, fine linen garments. They're white. They're pure. They're shining. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. So those three aspects of wearing white are in Revelation. And they're not uh, contradictory. They go together. This is intertwined in Revelation, intertwined in Scripture. It's important to get. To keep the Gospel will produce those who walk in white. If you keep the Gospel, you will live in the forgiveness you have in Christ. You will eventually be a full victor in Christ when He comes to finish what He started. And you will live a life of righteousness, of growing righteousness. You, might not, you won't be perfect, right? You'll struggle, but there's forgiveness and there's change in our lives. There are righteous deeds of the saints all coming out of keeping the Gospel. That's part of the reward. He says here that He will also confess our name before the Father and His angels when we're faithful and confess Him. He will confess our names. There will be a roll call on that final day. And our name, your name, and as a pastor, as we labor for this, that your name would be proudly announced by Jesus Himself. Proudly announced by Jesus Himself before the Father and the whole host of angels. That, that He will say, and it will be music to your brothers and sisters' ears, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your reward. There are no sweeter words to ever hear than those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your reward. That's the reward. Him confessing our name, gladly welcoming us into His presence forever. And it all comes from keeping the Gospel. He will never blot out our name from the book of life. The Sardis Christians were perhaps afraid of being blotted out of the synagogue book. There was a book the synagogues would keep of who's in the synagogue. And they were perhaps afraid to confess Christ because they would be blotted out and then they would be in trouble. Jesus says, if you confess my name, if you keep the gospel and live in the life that flows from that, your name will never be blotted out. You are secure in me and will live in me. Your name is there, safe and secure. These are the promises. These are the rewards of keeping the Gospel. And these rewards make all the temptations and trials, all the sorrows and persecutions, all the pain, 
all the rejection we might face from dear friends and family members whom we love, rejected because we're Christians, or just, or just kind of hoping that we'll you know, not talk about our faith, all the pain with that, all those things will be worth it because of the reward of walking with Christ in victory, having our name professed by Him, knowing that we're in the book of life. And so we must think long term. We can't let the temporary trials and temptations trip us up. We need to be thinking about that reward. Thinking about what matters most. Whose opinion matters most. In whose eyes our reputation matters most to us. It needs to be in Jesus. We need to be wise. When I was young, I I can remember um, uh, in in high school actually, uh, we had cliques. and Probably most high schools have cliques. And there were uh, all different cliques, all different groups, and they all had kind of names and characteristics. And, and uh, there were like the jocks, the druggies, the nerds, the hoods. Um, and then within actually some of the cliques, there were like subgroups. So in the jocks, there were like the, there were the hoodie jocks, the druggie jocks, and then this, well, we call them the soccer jocks sometimes, but they were, they were more the more academic ones. And my group was kind of the hoodie ones, the hoodie jocks, the fo- a lot of the football guys. And I thought it was great to be part of that group um, because we were popular and we all liked each other. We thought we were cool and, um, and we played sports and that made us really important. Um, and actually one of the things that the group did is, is we made fun of smart people. Um, we, we, made, we made fun of people who were smart and it wasn't very academically inclined. Most of the guys were, didn't do well in school, but well enough to keep playing on the football team. So you can guess, for me, I tended to do pretty well with academics. I hid that. And I, um, and I actually started taking lower level classes just because of, because of that. And I look back now and think, what a dope. I should have been a nerd. The nerds are doing way better than a lot of the jocks. Certainly the ones I hung, hung out with in, in many ways. I should have been a nerd. If I had had the foresight to think long term, like if I knew then what I know now, I would have been a nerd. Why do I tell you that story? Let's be nerds for Jesus. Let's not be afraid of what people think. Let's live in the gospel because it's going to matter at the end. It's going to matter most. That's going to matter most. And the opinions of people, even if they're people we respect and dearly love, they just don't matter in the long run. Let's be respectful. Let's be humble, yes. Let's live for Jesus. Let's live for that final reward if the bank could come up as, as I close here. So how are you doing in these areas? Is there something that you are treasuring more than the Gospel? Is there some opinion you're treasuring more than Jesus' opinion? Is there something in your life that has kind of captured your affection? It may be a good thing. There's lots of good things that Jesus means for us to enjoy, but enjoy under His reign. Enjoy under the priority of keeping the Gospel. But those things can, can end up taking our attention away from the Gospel and away from Him. Things like a job, boyfriend, a girlfriend, family, sports, possessions, leisure time, money, food, drink, sleep, even health. All those things that are, that are to find their proper place under Jesus can actually end up taking over and being more important to us than the Gospel. And then we'll live for those things. And if there are things like popularity and so forth, we'll end up compromising on that end as well. 
Jesus says to us, wake up, alert, alert, alert. Keep the gospel. Return to the gospel. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. What a wonderful opportunity to return, to remember what you received and heard, and to live in it, to keep it. Let's be a church that keeps the gospel. Let's be people who keep the gospel together and through that produce life, real life. Before we go to communion, I just want to encourage you to take a minute maybe while Jeff's coming up um, and just pray. Lord, what are you telling me that I need to be alert about? What can I do to walk in obedience to your word and faith and obedience? Maybe write that down and then we'll go to communion from there. So let's do that now.